Hello, Henrietta. Hi, Jason. Welcome to the conversations with Jason Campbell and Henrietta Galena. And on this episode of the conversations, we have a guest. We have a fashion journalist and sustainability activist, Bandana Tawari, who is uh, phoning in from Bali. And uh, Bandana is also the former fashion director of Vogue India. And uh, Bandana currently lives in Bali, which, which is integral to the topic for discussion this week. And that is essentially about employment and, and fashion. Specifically, in light of all the events, certainly the pandemic, but also what was taking place for some years prior to that. We're using this to ask the question, will there be a mass exodus from fashion? And we've invited Bandana as our guest to weigh in on this as she made the decision to move to Bali some years ago, leaving Vogue India. And she, while she still works in the fashion industry, she has changed the face of what her work looks like in this business. And so we have called upon her to weigh in on this subject of employment in the fashion industry, particularly as it relates to the current climate. So Welcome, Bandana. Hi. And welcome Thank to you. the conversation. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it very much. How are you? I am well. Thank you. It's a balmy evening in Bali. It's 8.38 at night. And, well, you can see the full moon. It's the third. Well, it's, it's residing, but the day before yesterday was the full moon. So there were yes. lots of Balinese ceremonies here, which is always amazing to be part of and witness. I love that you've already had your day already. It's like I'm oh. still drinking my morning coffee. <laughs> 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 yes, for those who don't know, Bali is directly um, 12 hours ahead from where we are in New York now. And Fandana, thank you so much for, um, for staying up for us to have this conversation with us. Um, and without further ado, let's, let's dive right into it. And what, what, what I will ask of you, Bandana, is to really give us a bit of your storyline. Tell us how you got to Bali, why you made the decision to leave Vogue India, and how your work in this industry is different at this current time. Right. Thank you both, Henrietta and Jason, for having me. I've been in Bali for four years. I lived in Ubud with my daughter. I'm a single mom. She went to a sustainability, sustainable school called the Green School, which is built entirely with bamboos by the local community. They eat from the farm. It's farm to table. They all are engaged in um, social experiments, so to speak, that's going to change uh, people's lives, impact lives, and whatever decision that they take in their professional lives in the future. So it's a very different environment from where I came from, which is Bombay, 22 million people, a bustling city with all the energy of a developing country and you know what India is all about. Um, but I moved to Bombay, sorry, I moved from Bali because I needed a change in pace. I worked with Vogue India for 13 years and I loved every bit of it. It was the most fulfilling time of my life meeting the best of designers, sitting face-to-face, -face, interviewing them, going into the crux of their creativity. So I have nothing to complain about. But because I'm Nepalese by my provenance and legacy, 
and I grew up in India, and now I live in Bali, Indonesia, it's very difficult to ignore the reality of day-to-day life. Life. So for me to be part of a very consumerist world of fashion where we think nothing of spending thousands of dollars on a handbag or a pair of shoes, but not think for a second that that same money could go into affecting change in people's lives who are marginalized, who are disenfranchised. Um, that for me became a kind of a guilt trip living in a developing country and working in a very consumerist world. So when I moved to Bali, it became quite clear and uh, very gratefully and hopefully very graciously, I could say thank you to my previous avatar in the fashion business. And I continue to be in the fashion world, but I uh, chose to walk the path of a sustainability activist. So today I spend my time, in the last four years, I've been talking about cultural sustainability, talking about rural economies that benefit from brands that become billionaires on the backs of sweat and blood of hardworking people Mm -hmm. uh, in developing countries. And because I live in this region, I see firsthand the sort of the inequalities that pervade our fashion system. And how, how much we need many, many voices and champions to see how we can correct the system. And lo and behold, you know, I live in Bali in a very quiet environment, doing my sustainability activism on my own with a computer, with no bells and whistles. And, um, and then COVID happens where everyone comes to a standstill. And then we realize what it means to care for the environment and the people and in isolation, how much do we really need? What is sustainability? It's the way we have to live our lives, our human beings. So it's not just about wearing an organic t-shirt anymore. It's how we consume our food, how we are compassionate about consumption. Are we conscious or are we conspicuous? So it was an organic trail for me. And here I am doing the same thing before COVID and now during COVID. Well, Bandana, your proximity to, you know, to some of the ills of the industry, I find I, I actually haven't, I did not know about that part of your story, which is what makes perfect sense. You were very close, let's say, to, to some of the, the destruction, the very visible destruction of this industry in terms of the environment and otherwise. And that really hit your conscience, essentially, is what you're saying. From seeing it firsthand in the way that you did, as you said, being really in the developing world, that hit you in a way that may not hit some of us in the fashion industry who are not so close to these problems. But it begs the question now, Bandana, um, and as as an activist now, your role is to educate and inform the greater industry about these ills and these problems. Do you think we will get there by virtue of not being as close to the problems as you have been historically? You know, if you see what happened in Bangladesh, when a handful of very rich uh, brands from the Western world who've been manufacturing in a very poor country like Bangladesh, whose economy depends on the rag trade that comes from the Western world, 
Uh, we know for a fact that almost 80% of the clothes made for the U.S. market are made in this part of the world, in Asia, Indonesia, Cambodia, Vietnam, Bangladesh, India. And so when we saw an entire country during COVID, the economy coming to a standstill, when factory workers weren't worried about getting COVID, but were worried about starvation, and all this emanated from the fact that massive contracts to the tune of $2 billion US dollars were cancelled, uh, contracts that were cancelled mm. because of COVID, put a country into penury overnight. It dragged an already poor country mm -hmm. into a poorer environment. And so that begs the question, how in unequal was this fashion system? that we've been glamorizing, romanticizing. This is not to take away from the fact that we will always love fashion. I love fashion. I love good clothes. I love beauty. I love creativity, as we all do. This is not to take away from the industry. It is about accountability of very skewed systems that need to be redressed now because it's not serving most of the people who are creating for us. And so this Bangladesh story has become an eye-opener. It already was an eye-opener when the Rana, Rana Plaza factory collapsed and most of the people who died there, the factory uh, workers, were, were women. Mm -hmm. So in this industry, there are more women working in the fashion industry than men. Certainly not on the top-level management, but the entire system in the supply chain is fueled by women. So it's a gender issue. It's a human rights issue. And now we need to really see COVID made us stand up and see what the direct ramification of our purchasing power can do to the manufacturing uh, environments in countries that are underdeveloped or developing. That this became such a brutal truth to face. So we can't, we can't hide anymore. And I think that's really interesting, all the examples that you bring up, because, you know, Rena Plaza's tragedy that happened seven years ago, and we've seen what's happened in Bangladesh, as you just outlined. And it seems like we're kind of swept up in these kind of news cycles, right? So it's all, you know, we need to do better. And there's all of these pieces in the press and there's these marketing strategies to try and contribute and, you know, marketing rhetoric around, you know, who's making your clothing and, and why that's important and how we support women and look at Everlane radical transparency. But do you think that we can actually really make any real change with everyone in their current roles? Like, do you really see that it needs to be like a real shift, not necessarily like a mass exodus, because I think what we're seeing is that people are either staying in fashion and being complicit or they're leaving fashion to, to help, much like yourself. Is there a way that we can reorganize ourselves so that the industry is less damaging, not just to other economies and the environment, but just that human cost? Is there a way that we can reorganize ourselves to be better and do better? Oh, absolutely, Henrietta. I'm, um, I'm an optimist in the sense that if I start thinking about changing a world order that I have no control over, big fast fashion companies that are the billionaires. That, that's not my world. I don't even know how to approach that world. My activism is based on personal responsibility for social change. It's a very Gandhian philosophy, which doesn't 
expect anyone else to change the world for you. You are the custodian of change. You are the moral compass within the industry that you work in. And that is what Gandhi talked about. So when I went all around the world, pre-COVID, different countries talking about the luxury business and how we can apply Gandhi's principle of frugality, of compassion, of ahimsa, which means non-violence, I think it was a call for personal change. Because we forget we are the ones who are bound. We are the ones individually creating the demand. We are the ones who pull out the wallet. We are the ones who spend our hard-earned money on things that we buy. So my idea of activism is very individualistic. It is about taking personal responsibility for social change. I would love everyone to know that as consumers, we have the biggest voices because we have the wallets. So the idea that what I spend and how I spend my money has to be really cognizant of the fact that the item that I want that is so cheap didn't come out of nothing. Every time you and I go and buy a t-shirt that costs $2.99 and we're like, it's so cheap. I can buy five of those or even 10 of those because it's so cheap. We cannot forget that someone's paying the mm -hmm. price somewhere else in the world. You, they may be invisible to you. And that's the system that I cannot stand, that we made fashion so invisible in the processes and the people to make the product. You know, high fashion is relied on the idea that a thing of beauty appeared in the ramp. It was the beginning and the end of the journey. That is it. A thing of beauty mm -hmm. walked beautifully on the ramp. We've forgotten how many hands that touched it, how many countries that it had to travel to before it came to you. And in that supply chain, the value chain, the trajectory of that product, how many people have been marginalized and not been paid fair wages, not been acknowledged, who've been voiceless, invisible. So as individual consumers, when we pull out our wallet, when we want to spend our hard-earned money, we have a right to ask the company, where do these clothes come from? Who made them? Why is it so cheap? What are the materials that are being used? You know, this is why I talk about um, shopping diet, because I live in Bali and people from all over the world come here to go on a cleanse. They go for yoga, they go for diets, there is fasting, you're cleansing your system constantly to take your the toxins out of your system. Yet we wear clothes that are full of toxins every day, not just toxins that are related to uh, petroleum products, polyester, and what have you, but emotional toxins. We are taking on the grief of people who have not been served well by an industry that's thriving. And we are participants in this inequality. So we need to look at our roles individually. I'm not going to sit there and point at companies. They have their shit to deal with. They should be doing that in their own place, in their own way. But me as an individual, what changes can I make? Mm. When I buy something, I want to buy something of value, something that I know my money is going in the right place for all the right reasons. I, I have a super quick follow-up question, which is that I do believe that there is a, a sort of more cultural and psychological shift towards what you're talking about on a consumer level. 
Um, but I think that particularly in this time, there's so much more economic and cultural context around income equality and, and the other things that we sort of think about that might fuel, let's say, fast fashion, you know, families not being able to afford organic food and high price point items and maybe an Old Navy or a H&M is what they can afford for their kids you know, to clothe themselves, etc. So with all of that and everything that's happening in the news cycle from, you know, the racial unrest to COVID, etc., that space for education and for really understanding a lot of the complicated themes that you're talking about might take a bit more time. So do you not think that the onus might be on these corporations and the people that lead these businesses because they're really governed by the bottom line. And I think that change might be swifter if they actually implemented certain business and manufacturing processes than waiting for consumer change. Do you know what I mean? Right. No, I understand. Absolutely. I'm not saying that I do not hold you know, these big companies accountable. What I'm saying is what I can do individually, but yes, these are the big companies that should be absolutely they've been shameless in the way they've pillaged poorer countries to benefit private companies um the fact that you know and we as susie menkes has said this before and i repeat and you know, repeat what she said if a t-shirt is going to cost less than a cup of coffee there's something fundamentally wrong in the way we consume and the way things are sold to us the fact is, we've been blinded by an industry that doesn't want to tell you what the systems are in place to bring you the stuff that we wear every day or consume every day. There's a huge chunk of the narrative that is missing in the, the creation, the manufacturing, the, the transportation, carbon footprint. That is all hidden to the consumer, more or less. And, you know, so it's a chicken and egg story. Does mm -hmm. the brand tell you what it is or does the consumer demand what it, it, it is? So I think it, the, the changes have to happen from both ends. I hold both sides accountable. I felt extremely guilty personally because when I gave up my life in Bombay, I promise you, 13 years of Vogue, the goodies that I had, the clothes that I had that still had price tags, that, so that meant I hadn't even worn them. Um, that accumulation was disgusting. I felt disgusted with myself on a personal level. So I feel things have to happen from um, different places. But on a personal note, there is the idea of, it's called stuffocation. We are suffocated by the stuff that we accumulate. That we don't even need that much stuff. So is that, does that mean that we need an ideological shift in the way we want to consume? Because we've mm. always been told bigger is better, faster, not fewer. See now, buy now. That was a mantra. Buy now, pay later. <laughs> it's a whole trend now. So, but you know, the, the, what I feel really optimistic about right now is the way that digital, the digital world has just taken over because of COVID and we're sitting at home. There's digital fashion week, the first Helsinki fashion week, the first 3G fashion week that's ever happening. Um, we are talking about uh, augmented reality. We're talking about virtual reality in our shopping experiences. Suddenly stores look like you're walking into websites. 
and websites look like you're walking into brick and mortar stores. And these are the big changes that are happening with technology. And so the, one of the big changes with technology, especially with augmented reality, is the idea that shifts from what we grew up with, which is see now, buy now, which is not sustainable. What technology is telling us is try before you buy. That's the experience that technology gives you. So I feel optimistic that because of COVID, everyone is now geared up to catapult their company into a digital forum where we get to experiment digitally what we may like, what we may not like, maybe get deeper into the backstory of the brand, how it was made, experiment before we buy. And it means that we will buy less and then waste less. But Bandana, what that speaks to is uh, a significant shrinkage. All of this technological development, I, I, I agree with you. I think it's. I think this is advancement. I think this is going to. Um, this is going to impact the supply chain from top to bottom, and it's going to require that a lot of the bloat, you know, gets shrunken in. In that shrinkage that would come, the mass exodus would be just a part, would be a byproduct of that shrinking in. So one may not have the choice, speaking from a personnel perspective, yeah. one may not have the choice. That exodus may just be part of the, let's say, natural mandate, if you will, rather than a choice by passion professionals to even reframe the way that they work in this industry. They may not even have the opportunities that you had being prescient in the way that you operate to craft a new career. That just in how you're speaking, you're speaking to a much, much leaner industry. So I'm speaking to that exodus being almost like a foregone conclusion. Well, I think it was an inflated industry to start with. Mm. And it was getting more and more ballooned into some sort of a illusionary world of wealth that only benefited a few, not the many. There is no doubt that lots of jobs are going to be lost. Lots of new roles, lots of roles are going to be lost. There were certain, um, I think it's such a shift in the way we are going to look at the industry now because the jobs of yesterday are perhaps not applicable. You've got apps that are stylists today, right? You may not even need a human being to be a stylist. At the same time, you've got new generation of professions that you would never have thought of in the fashion industry. You waste managers today from, because they can talk about waste to wealth. When you're talking about recycling and upcycling, waste management could become one of the top jobs to manage. Mm -hmm. uh, you talk about you know, the digital world that we live in. The kind of expertise that you need for people to be on top of the game, the new talent, the new digital talent for CGI, for AI, for VR. That's a new stream of professions that are going to come in. Now, I do understand that this is high-level, high-tech environment that we are talking of, and that usually exists in very affluent countries, Scandinavian countries, all populations that invest a lot in research and development. I've been part of Global Change Award in Stockholm, and I see the kind of innovation that comes from making fabrics from uh, crop waste. 
from vegan leather, from wine waste, from grape waste. I see all that because they're small countries, they're rich, they're controlled, they can invest. What happens to countries like India, Indonesia, Cambodia, Vietnam, for the manufacturing hubs? My point is not about innovation in these countries. It's about fair wages. We were not, in this part of the world, people are not asking to live in mansions and have uh, the kind of privileges that people in other parts of the world do. They just want fair wages, which amounts to perhaps a couple of dollars more in their kitty. So that's the level of dysfunctionality in our system. Yeah. The idea that big fast fashion companies were making so much stuff, the inventory was so massive that they were burning a huge stockpile into landfills, degrading our environment when they did not need to produce in excess. All they needed to do was produce intelligently use data to know what we should be manufacturing, but also pay more to the people who are manufacturing for you, the factory workers in the different countries who are not in the Western world. Mm. It's not about taking away jobs. This is about giving value to the jobs. One of the things that you are referencing, which I think is really interesting, is this shift in how the industry can work for people and the planet. And so, you know, you're talking more about sort of technological advancements, ways to mitigate the damage we've already done over decades of waste and decades of exploitation. So these new roles like waste management, for instance, I've been reading a lot about that. And that is a whole new burgeoning sector of the industry. Data, data for made to measure, made to order products, AI website building, UI, UX design. That seems to be the new frontier of fashion. But I wonder if we're moving away from fashion because a lot of these challenges and roles that we're talking about to mitigate and be better and make things better because we've just been greedy and awful. What about the role of fashion? Like, It seems like also to Jason's point of this byproduct of the change or or of the shrinkage is is, um, a mass exodus. It seems like there could also be mass exodus because what we're talking about doesn't inherently feel like fashion. You know, like you said, we all love fashion. There's a reason why we all work in fashion. I said in the last episode, there's a reason why we, you know, we're putting our blood, sweat and tears and we're really fighting for the integrity of our industry. But if it's not our industry as we recognize it, what about that? What's the role of someone who genuinely loves actual fashion but doesn't necessarily want to work? The glamour, the image, you know, everything <laughs> they've seen in the films. Obviously, we know we know fashion's not like that, but there is an element that we strive for that's aspirational, that is meaningful in that creative way. What if you don't want to work in waste management or you know, digital AI, UX, whatever? Like, what about all of those elements contributing to mass exodus? Are you talking, are you envisioning that fashion stays fashion in the way that we recognize it? Oh, not at all. I don't think fashion is going to be fashion the way we knew it. I mean, as much as I'm also, I love going to fashion weeks. I love seeing stylists, creators, designers, collaborating, all of that. My point in talking about technology is based on the fact that there are certain um skills that you can bring to the table 
that is environmentally safe uh, and less wasteful. For instance, if I'm a jewelry designer, okay, and I'm working with repurposed gold, so I'm doing a good job being sustainable, um, but I'm using the materials. So pre-COVID, what would I do? As a jewelry maker, I would make samples. The material would have to come from one country and go to the other and the sample doesn't fit, then I have to make another one. I have to create an inventory. I don't really know who may like it or not, but I'm experimenting because I'm a creative person. That's a lot of carbon footprint that goes back and forth. And that's just one jewelry brand that I'm talking about. Think about the clothing business, and every other accessory um, uh, the department that you can think of within the fashion industry. Now, if we take that onto a digital platform, and this is already happening. The sampling is happening online with CGI, computer-generated imagery. It allows you to experiment in a million ways how you want, would like to see your product. Um, it takes away the kind of wastage that was absolutely unnecessary. And maybe at a time when you know, our environment was flourishing and looked like nothing could be depleted, it was okay. But today, climate crisis tells us things are depleting. We can't even be excavating the earth for minerals and for gold and diamonds anymore. Just like we don't do that, we don't want to do that for fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. Just like we don't want to chop off ivory from, uh, from elephants in Africa. This has become a reality. But even the lifestyle of it all, which is which is also part of it as well, we realise that that wastage we've seen in the New York Times article, the extravagance of, let's say, an Anna Winter lifestyle, where we hear stories of Andre Leontelli, you know, back in the day, I was actually watching a clip of Bevy Smith talking about her previous career as an advertising exec, where she was like, Milan, darling, first class, <laughs> darling. You know, I used to go to the, all the fashion weeks for business development. I was flown first class to Brazil. Those things seem almost gross now in the midst of where we are and so wasteful when you can hop on a Zoom. So just even the lifestyle of the things that we love, you know, that privilege that I sit front row at Fashion Week. Does there need to be a Fashion Week? Is, is a front row democratic? You know, all of a sudden, all of these themes are changing. So that's also what I'm speaking about when we talk about even fashion before we even get down to the layers of the machinations of how product is made. There is an, an exclusivity and a privilege that comes from working your way up in fashion that seems quite like... I, I think you, if you... The idea of exclusivity is a double-edged sword now. Because right. the idea of exclusivity before the internet boom was, well, of course you felt privileged because you were the one sitting in the front row. I mean, you know, I was part of the generation that literally entered into the fashion business when smartphones came around. So it was quite horrifying to see everyone sitting in the front room. They were still looking for a camera, you know? And now with the acceleration of uh, digital economy and <laughs> the manifestations of the internet of world of everything that is, you know, internet, um, it's so democratic. It's, it, it has taken fashion out of a very high pedestal and made it democratic. So someone sitting in a pajama has as much access to a right. very fine Burberry show 
as much as the person sitting in the front row. And so that begs the question, what do we do with this amount of democratization? Because we always believe that fashion was elitist. It was only for the few. The few dictated what the rest of the world should wear and which way it should head sartorially. And now every guy in his pajamas who is annoyed and frustrated has the right to shame the top designers, mm-hmm. call out for any kind of cultural inappropriation, you name it. I, I don't have to repeat these things. We're living through these moments. So on the one hand, it is so empowering. You know, we talked about six degrees of separation. Now I literally can write directly to that awful Donald Trump on Twitter. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, could, I can do my directly. So this has to amount to some sort of accountability that was really, you know, we needed to have that accountability in fact. For far too long, it was so far removed from reality. We removed so many sectors, segments and categories and of people people of different races, you name it. You know, we vilified and made fashion so elitist that this seems to be like, you know, uh, the turn, you know, for, for regular people. And I consider myself pretty regular because I live in a jungle right now. Be able to sit there and say, hey, it's not working. I'm sorry. Well, Nothing it- but bad and uh, it seems like this conversation has you know has dipped into you know t- talking about the death knell of of the fashion industry you know it seems that we're at we're kind of at this point right now and, and a statistic that I'd like to introduce here is that I, I read recently that forty two percent of of uh, fashion students this we're talking about twenty twenty here of um students who are planning to study fashion forty two percent of them postpone those plans to study to study fashion and and for the myriad reasons certainly some of them have been discussed um in this phone call but it just i I think the this audience is also seeing that this industry this this very well marketed fashion industry brand that we've seen over the last 30 to 40 years that brand no longer stands that brand no longer exists and so for these students who were enamored and dazzled by the, the glamorous industry with, you know, excellent uh, first-class travel perks and first-class hotels and these sorts of things, that's really, really now seeming a thing of the past, not just for us who have been on the front lines of the industry, but for those who were looking at it as a part of their dreamscape. Now they're like, oh, wait a minute. I don't, I don't see the picture. I don't see the image of this industry that, mm-hmm. I, that I once knew. I thought that statistic was very telling. You know what I, I really feel now because of COVID, we are all stuck by boundaries. Passports mean nothing. Um, mm. You know, a, a, a U.S. visa used to be the most coveted thing in the world, and now no one wants to go. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, keep it. <laughs> like our values and what we thought was valuable has changed. That's right? so true. In this, in this. I feel really optimistic about one thing. Because we are now closed within our own boundaries, we all had to return to our hometowns or home cities, countries, whatever, because we can't travel anywhere. Um, 
I feel we have, as creative people, especially designers, and we've already seen with a few of the Italian designers, now you have no choice but to deep dive into your own culture and understand your own narrative and celebrate your own narrative, which in turn means that from living in a world that was so globalized and so homogenized, it didn't matter. I could buy the same thing in New York City or in Bombay or in Jakarta or in Tokyo. I would find the same stuff everywhere. Mm-hmm. From that world now, because we are closed in and every culture and every country is holding on to its people because they can't let them go out and they can't come in, I think we, everyone needs to look into their own backyard and revise, revisit, and celebrate their own cultural heritage. And for me, that is important personally because here is a time of celebrating difference. I love the idea that now we can truly say we are from different cultures and it's okay. And we can celebrate your culture and we can celebrate my culture. But I don't need to be homogenized into a culture of t-shirts and hoodies and sneakers and whatever which as comfortable as they are, took away from the, the narrative of our provenance, narrative of our heritage. Oh. So the storytelling in fashion, everything was for everyone. Everyone was the same. <laughs> Do we want to live in a world where everyone is same? I love the difference. And we should be celebrating that. And I hope COVID reminds us while sitting in our own neighborhoods, in our own towns, you know, with our own grandfathers and grandmothers and what have we, listening to their stories, let's go and dig back, dig into a provenance and create things that actually have authentic stories. So this is not about buying just things anymore. You're buying a narrative. You're buying mm. someone's narrative. You're enjoying someone's narrative. But for me, uh, I feel that is important. I love that. I hope and so that's too. Pre- and that prescription to localize things manufacturing and otherwise product, just like everything being more hyper-local. I've always thought that that would be a, an important pivot in this industry, Bandana, and especially yeah. in the face of working for, you know, say these corporate behemoths or these companies with these accelerated cycles that comes along with long work hours, underpay, smaller budgets for doing graded deliverables and so forth, you know, heavy content demand of this time. Look at social media. Look at this, like this machine that it demands to be, you know, it demands all this content uh, to keep it moving. I just saw in the face of this more hyper-localized approach was this destructive thing to the person, you know, never mind the environment and all of those um, exploitative impacts, but as well to the actual person, the person who is executing these jobs. I'm talking about long work, the burnout factor, let's say. So yeah. I, I think that that needs to be looked at in how, what this industry has demanded of us over this period of time and what needs to change in us looking at our well-being more, more concertedly and so forth. So I, I'm very interested in that alternative prescription you, you propose. Yeah, you know, Jason, the, the fact is when the slow food movement started, it really picked up momentum, right? Because food is something that we ingest. And so organic food, farm to table, all of that held a lot of gravitas and we resonated to that movement very quickly, very quickly. I mean, the culinary 
experiences of the world was just focused on authenticity of the produce. Yet, with slow fashion movement, we are pretty slow at getting to that point. Yet, we are the ones wearing those clothes every day, day in and day out, and not even questioning. So I find that a little hypocritical. So it's very important to look at how we consume as human beings as a 360-degree view as consumers, because what we put into our bodies is as important as what we put over our bodies. And so the slow fashion movement is something that I really prescribe to. It talks about people before products. Mm. It talks about respecting processes because there's a process that takes time to make a product of beauty. And there are people behind those processes. But let me add one more thing to it, which has come to me because of COVID. And when we see so many people, you know, lost in, in the world because their worlds have collapsed, because the consumerist world has collapsed right now, is what is the purpose of creativity? So sure, you have the product, you have the people, you have the processes. Now let's talk about a process. I don't think, think that a thing, a thing of beauty for beauty's sake is compelling anymore. A thing of beauty that can change lives, that can empower lives, is really a thing of beauty, mindfulness, of compassion. Otherwise, we just accumulate it. We are hoarders. Yeah, I feel like it's interesting because we're sort of stuck between two worlds, right? We're talking about fashion, the reason we got into fashion, the ideology of what fashion has been or was, once was. Then we're talking about the direction in which it's going, which feels very tech and enabling us to be better and process better and be less harmful. But we're stuck somewhere in between of knowing we need to do better, but still holding on to themes of the past. But we're in this age, particularly in the pandemic. I mean, everything you just said, I wholeheartedly agree with. And Jason and I have so many layered discussions about creativity versus profitability and creativity. What's the purpose? What's the role of fashion, etc. I mean, I've never heard a CEO talk like that. And ultimately, those are the people that are making these company decisions in terms of people over product, people over profitability, you know, process, yep. creativity. They're thinking about bottom line. They're literally like bottom line at all costs by any means necessary. And it's in their best interest to fuel unhealthy relationships with consumerism because then you keep buying all the drops, right? You keep buying all the newness. So again, I know I've kind of asked you this question before, but what is that role of the power structure? What's that role of the business leaders? Because it's very counter to what their entire objective is, especially in an age where everyone wants unicorn status. Everyone wants to be a hundred million dollar business. Everyone just wants more. Uh, Jason and I spoke about this often. It's not enough to say we're profitable. You know, we, we're profitable at two million a year. That's good. Everyone wants to have that glossier away valuation. Um, so what does, how do you see the role of the business leader who ultimately is the one in the driver's seat? I imagine there's a lot of people downstream in the business that really speak to and adhere to our ideology. But if the business leaders aren't thinking that, then how can we move forward? You know, what do I know? I'm living in the jungle. In the <laughs> <laughs> but you're so wise. But you're so, you're wise. so wise. 
<laughs> and I feel quite naive about the way I expect human beings to rise up, you know, at a moment of crisis and not just think about themselves, but the environment, the community that they live in. But I'm also really optimistic that the new generation of leaders that are coming up are not thinking only for profit, for profit's sake. They want to have an impact in the world that they live in. You know, I have a teenage daughter. She's 18. She turned 18 yesterday. Oh, and I've happy belated. I've been surrounded by uh, teenagers who are going to be, you know, the, the generation that's going to lead us forward. And I promise you, A, they're being taught differently, which is all about social impact. And B, they themselves know that whatever decision that they take in life for profitability, which is their right, and it should be encouraged, also has to take other people into their game or whatever it is. With goal number 10 of sustainable um, goals of the United Nations, which is don't leave people behind. Mm. So this is going to be the new mantra of leadership. And it's mm. changing already. I know that New York Times did a piece on the kind of leadership Anna Wintour had, for instance, in Condé Nast. And this is not to deride anyone. I'm just talking about an editorial that came out, which talked explicitly about a um, system that is not going to work or benefit moving forward because it only served a few. And these are massive publications that are announcing extremely powerful people in the game who are going to be beholden to a bigger purpose and being called out. And this is happening in just about every industry. Today, it doesn't matter. You can be Bill Gates, but people will judge you because they think that there's an insidious agenda that he may perhaps have during COVID. It doesn't matter that he came across as a philanthropist, but he's being held accountable. He's being called out. So really, I, I really believe that there is a movement where people, especially people in corporate power, forget political power because they are useless, <laughs> but in power are going to be held accountable because we are in a world that is so interconnected that I can reach you anytime, mm -hmm. no matter how powerful you are. But that is a very powerful tool for an individual sitting anywhere in the world, however marginalized you may feel. You have a voice because of social media. And that, for that, I feel grateful that perhaps there is a way forward. Yeah. Well, on that note, literally, I'm transfixed here by you, Bandana, with all of this knowledge um, and wisdom that you're, you're dropping. And this, we've, we've actually discussed the subject, Henrietta. We discussed this a couple of years ago. We talked about, you know, the exodus from fashion where um, professionals are moving to upstate New York and are doing organic farming or moving to Ibiza and leading meditation groups and so forth. There has been some, there's been some brewing to this um, surely over the last few years. But as you've outlined in this conversation, Bandana, during COVID here, it's really brought so, so much into focus. And we're still, we're still in the process. We're still in the midst of all of this. Uh, no doubt, no doubt, this is a conversation to carry on. 
uh, because we're going to continue to see the changes, particularly as it comes to as it relates to employment in this industry uh, going forward. And I hope that we can revisit this conversation with you, Bandana, as things develop in this industry. And as we see that personnel are essentially making really concerted efforts, concerted choices about their life and work as it relates to purpose-driven position in the business. Yeah, I mean, I agree with everything Bandana actually just ended on because I think that that accountability is something that's really difficult to escape. I think the determining factor here will be marketing, right? And how we, if we're able to paper over the cracks and the gaping holes and the potholes in order to sort of breeze forward or if we're actually going to have people and leaders and the system held accountable, you know, because even to the point of we all have a voice as individuals, if there are campaigns against call out culture, you know, and cancel right. culture, that yeah. then that then makes it difficult to use your individual voice if you're shamed for using it. So that's what I'm saying. The role of marketing, you know, greenwashing, faux inclusion, yeah. faux diversity, all of that sort of thing. It's like, if I think the role of marketing is going to be instrumental as to how we move forward. And if we're really going to move forward in a meaningful way that holds the right people accountable versus marketing providing covers for everyone to just continue and go back to the status quo. So. I'm optimistic, but I think a lot remains to be seen. And marketing is an instrumental piece to that. I agree. I agree. <laughs> well, Bandana, thank you so much for joining us on this conversation. And we hope to revisit a discussion with you in the future. Yes, thank you. You are wonderful and so wise. <laughs> oh, not at all. Maybe it's the coconut that's falling on my head every day. <laughs> this is one of my favorite. You've always been one of my favorite people in fashion and one of the wisest and you continue to be. So thank you oh. for imparting your knowledge to us. <laughs> thank you, guys. I really appreciate it. You know, it feels, it feels like I am part of a conversation. Sometimes you feel lost sitting alone in a very very quiet place and then when you guys engage me i feel it's worth it <laughs> thank you thank you we'll be having you back no doubt thank, so thank you, you so dear. much <laughs> and be good well. night <laughs> bye bye Ciao. Oh.